Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, the big news as we speak is that Israel and Hamas appear to be on the verge of agreeing a deal to bring about at least a temporary ceasefire in the war in Gaza. This comes at a crucial moment in the conflict when the world was beginning to wonder how long the IDF could continue the campaign in its current form given the appalling price in civilian casualties, with well over 13,000 Palestinians dead, most of them women and children. It's not a done deal, but all the signs are it could be soon. The news was broken by Ishmael Hania, the head of Hamas, speaking in Qatar, who said the two sides were close to reaching a truce agreement. There's been no reaction from Israel thus far, but President Biden also expressed optimism at a Thanksgiving event. The statement from the Hamas leader, who lives in Qatar, came after he'd met the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross in the capital, Doha. The ICRC helped deliver the four hostages who were released last month. A Hamas official told the Al Jazeera news network that the agreement now being discussed would include the release of Israeli women and children, as well as Palestinian women and children, in Israeli detention. More aid would also be allowed into Gaza. It's assumed there would also be a pause in the fighting to allow hostages out and aid in. So what do you think, Patrick? Well, it looks good, doesn't it? And both sides would gain enormously from some sort of truce. If I was Benjamin Netanyahu, I'd be seizing it with both hands. And for two reasons, for one, it would diffuse the rising anger from the families of the 240 or so hostages Hamas is holding prisoner in Gaza. A pause in the war would obviously benefit Hamas, and much more to the point, the people of Gaza, they would stop at least getting killed in the numbers they are getting killed in from Israeli bombardment. 17 more died in an airstrike on the Nusayrat refugee camp in central Gaza overnight. And of course, uh, letting in supplies would avert a potentially huge humanitarian disaster, which all the aid agencies and the UN have been warning of. But to get back to Israel, I think it would benefit Israel because, as I see it, this war is going nowhere from their point of view. And the IDF's got no chance of of achieving its stated aim of destroying Hamas without inflicting further huge civilian casualties and doing further damage to its reputation in the world. We've said all along, haven't we, Saul, that the IDF couldn't win this war according to the objectives that it set itself. And this seems to me to be how it's turning out. Look at what's happening with the story of the Shifa Hospital, which has been much in the news in the last week. Now, the hospital consists of a number of buildings inside a compound in the heart of Gaza City, and it was flagged up by the Israelis as an important Hamas position. The claim was that Hamas had a headquarters underneath the hospital, as well as depots, presumably of military equipment. Now, of course, the hospital has been overflowing with casualties from the fighting and running desperately short of the fuel and medicines needed to carry on. It's also crammed with civilians who've gone there to seek refuge. Many have since fled south in the pauses in the fighting called by the IDF. And some patients, including uh, premature babies, have been evacuated. But there are still were hundreds of people remaining there. Now, the IDF took control of the hospital at the weekend. But so far, there's been very little evidence that I've seen from the Israeli side that the claim that this is a major Hamas location is in fact the case. And this, of course, is something that the doctors who work there, medical staff who work there, vehemently denied. 
I don't know if you've seen this all, but there's various clips the IDF have put out to support the claim. And the, the evidence seems to me to be pretty un- underwhelming. What we got was a video of what was said to be a tunnel entrance, basically shows a hole in the ground with a, with a multi-story block uh, from inside the Shifa Hospital complex in the background. And there's also footage of weapons that were said to be found inside a white van inside the complex, including AK-47 assault rifles, magazines, hand grenades, sniper rifles, explosives. And uh, one of the spokesmen, uh, Jonathan Conrykus, uh, took viewers on a tour of the MRI department, which had been wrecked by the fighting, and showed them backpacks carrying ammunition, a few rifles, etc., which they say were stashed behind the MRI machines and in a medical supply cupboard, plus a few laptops. Now, all this was to back up their claim that Hamas uses hospitals as operational centers. How convinced were you by the evidence that the IDF has put out thus far? Well, a little bit more than you were by the sound of things, Patrick. I mean, I think the Institute for the Study of War, which we've trusted on a lot of matters in relation to Ukraine, is a good guide for this. It wrote about these discoveries. The IDF uncovered a tunnel system underneath Al-Shifa Hospital, which is consistent with Israel's repeated assertions that Hamas uses humanitarian infrastructure for military activities. The IDF and Israel Security Agency published drone footage on November 19 of a 55-metre-long tunnel 10 metres underneath the hospital. Israeli forces located the tunnel underneath a shed near a vehicle full of weapons, including rocket-propelled grenades, other explosives and small arms, as you pointed out. Well, the other bit of evidence, of course, that is important and was produced by the Israelis was the CCTV footage showing Hamas militia fighters taking hostages into the hospital. And that's actually on October the 7th, which of course was the date of the attack. The footage shows Palestinian fighters transferring hostages to the hospital on that date after, as we know, hundreds of Hamas fighters attacked civilian targets. The IDF said there are Israeli military vehicles that Hamas took from Israel parked at the hospital. And the IDF has repeatedly said, as we've already pointed out, that Hamas uses Al-Shifa Hospital and other civilian infrastructure for military activities. Well, are we to just take the IDF's word for it? No, we should not. Back in the late 2000s, when Hamas first took over the Gaza Strip, an American PBS documentary showed Hamas gunmen prowling the corridors of Al-Shifa Hospital, intimidating staff and denying access to protected areas. A few years later, in 2014, a Washington Post journalist reported that the hospital, and I quote, has become a de facto headquarters Hamas leaders. And in 2015, Amnesty International said that Hamas interrogated and tortured prisoners in Al-Shifa. So am I convinced that Hamas is still using the hospital and its infrastructure to shield its terrorist activities? Yes, I think on the balance of probabilities, I probably am. At the same time, none of this is justification for some of the shock and awe tactics the Israelis are using in Gaza and the inevitable civilian casualties that result. Nowhere in Gaza seems to be safe. On Saturday, the UN-run Fakura School in the Jabalia refugee camp in the north of the Strip, where displaced people have been hoping they might be safe, was hit, uh, killing dozens, many of them women and children. The Israeli response was fairly typical and may have some justification. That is that the attacks successfully targeted Hamas military leaders, their fighters and the tunnel network they dug beneath civilian areas. The reality is probably that, as with the Al-Shifa hospital, Hamas has deliberately located its positions near to this other civilian infrastructure. 
That might explain these attacks by the IDF, but it doesn't justify them, of course. Now, all of this is adding to the pressure for some sort of ceasefire. It's not coming just from politicians, but also from military figures. And I was struck by an interview given by Major General Charlie Herbert, a former British senior officer, who described the attack on Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza as, and I quote, collective madness. He added, how can the world watch on, impotent, complicit, or simply disinterested in the daily massacre of Palestinians in Gaza? I think he means there, Patrick, uninterested, but I'll carry on with the quote. What next? Will Israel be allowed to do this to the southern and now more populated half of Gaza next? Everyone supports the need to defeat Hamas. Of course we do, but it's immoral and unethical to choose to do so in a way that kills and maims so many civilians, especially children, when there are other options available. Well, of course, the next thing we've heard is that Israel plans to carry on, as we've already pointed out, with the ground operation into southern Gaza, which is going to cause inevitable problems. Is that how you see it, Patrick? Well, hopefully the hostage deal may call a pause. We'll come on to this a bit later on about, you know, the many advantages in actually not resuming the fighting. But if they do press on as they are at the moment pledged to do, then, you know, it's just going to be more of the same with terrible consequences for the people of Gaza, but also for Israel's reputation, as we repeatedly say. Now, this is a very divisive issue, isn't it? I don't say because people are siding with Hamas, but they're inevitably looking on Israel's claims to be only defending itself and in the process blaming Hamas for the civilian casualties by, as you say, I agree with you, hiding among the civilian population inside hospitals, etc. They take those claims with some skepticism now, and it doesn't really help that officials express themselves in such hyperbolic language uh, to make their case. I mean, starting at the very top, Benjamin Netanyahu said the other day that the IDF was the most moral army in the world and did everything humanly possible to avoid civilian casualties. Well, I think a lot of people looking at the images coming out of Gaza might raise their eyebrows at that. Um, And even Netanyahu was forced the other day to say that uh, even though that might be their aim, they weren't managing to do that, i.e. keep civilian casualties to a a minimum. But, you know, I return to the point that um, what's happening in Gaza is not just dreadful, it's also militarily senseless. As we've said from the beginning, Saul, even if they kill every single legitimate Hamas fighter, they won't kill Hamas. Most of it's Real leaders don't even live there. Look where we're hearing the news about the truce from, or potential truce from, from Ismail Hamir. He's holed up in uh, in Qatar, along with others of, of the leadership. So all this operation is doing, as I can see, is just writing another chapter in the cycle of atrocity and revenge. So without any sort of peace deal, which uh, it looks very, very unlikely at the moment, this is just going to go on and on, isn't it? And in the meantime, Israel's world standing, which you know has been pretty battered in, in recent years, is going to take another hammering. However, if this ceasefire agreement does go through, and we ought to emphasize again that this is by no means signed and sealed, it does offer a chance of more than a temporary truce, I would say, wouldn't you, Saul? 
Yeah, and it's worth looking a little bit about its origins. I mean, it's interesting. I said only last week on the podcast that I thought the chances of a hostage deal were pretty low for the very good reason that when you got to the sort of end game of all of this, if indeed we do get to it, the Hamas leaders are going to want at least some of the hostages. Well, actually, that's probably going to be the case because in terms of the numbers who are about to be released, the Washington Post reported a couple of days ago that the agreement was that dozens of women and children were going to be released. No men, no soldiers, of course, probably in the region of about 50. Another 50 women and children, Palestinians held in Israeli detention, would also be released. And this would be accompanied by a five-day pause in the conflict. The six-page set of written terms would require all parties to the conflict to freeze combat operations for this period of time while Palestinian militias release these 50 or more hostages in small batches every 24 hours. Now, even if 50 are released, of course, that's still going to leave between 150 and 200 hostages still in their hands. So my broader point about them not releasing everyone, I think, is going to hold true. But I suppose the interesting question we have to ask ourselves, Patrick, is whether or not it will be possible, given world opinion, for Israel to resume operations at the end of that period. And the only thing that makes me think it might be possible is by still using this argument, there are a lot of hostages still being held. But no doubt it's going to be a tricky moment. What's your feeling? Yeah, well, I think this just in, in the normal way of things, it will be hard to get back up to the tempo that they've been fighting this war, waging this war on again without some further provocation from from Hamas, which I think Hamas will be very reluctant to give at this point. We're going to talk a bit in the second half about how they're actually fighting this war. But it seems to me that it does actually offer both sides a way out of this, which they'd both be uh, very, very wise to to take, I think. I mean, Netanyahu will be able to, he'll, he's under a lot of pressure at home from the families, not just from the families of the hostages, but also from the Israel public in general to get them back. So getting some of them back with the prospect of more down the line would seem to me to, to be a very good break on a resumption of hostilities on the former scale. They'll be able to turn to their public and say, look, you know, the 1,200 Israelis who were killed by Hamas on the 7th of October, they have been avenged. Gaza City is now pretty much, or large parts of it, are a pile of ruins. Lots of Hamas fighters have obviously been killed. So the IDF can claim to have struck the organization a devastating blow. And one would like to think that, um, you know, it would be politically quite difficult to resume the fighting at the same level that it's been raging at after a significant pause of the of the sort of time that's being mooted at the moment. It's tricky, isn't it, Patrick? Because according to the Israelis, they believe that the senior Hamas leaders inside the Gaza Strip are south of this line. In other words, the area that they plan to take their operations into next. And yet at the same time, the Israelis are up against an awful lot of pressure from the Americans in particular, who've just said only in the last 24 hours, they need to think seriously if they do go into the southern part of the Strip, how they're going to conduct operations and keep Palestinian civilians safe, which is what we've been saying all along. And of course, the argument uh, is probably it's almost impossible to do that. So they will be coming under increasing pressure uh, and it might be very difficult for them to resume, as you say. Yeah, especially as they said at the beginning, you know, they were dropping leaflets, they were uh, warning the population of what was going to happen in the north and in Gaza City. And they were saying, head south, get on the road south. They were opening 
up the Salahuddin uh, Highway there. They were announcing safe periods when civilians could move down the Salahuddin Highway down to the south of, of Gaza. If they're now moving into what they'd previously said were safe areas, and they're again opening themselves up to yet further criticism. So it is, as you said, extremely delicate decision and one that has huge consequences for all dis- all concerned. Okay, that's enough for the first half. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, the first question we have is from Mario Blanco in Oslo in Norway. Hello, Saul and Patrick, he says, as an avid follower of your podcast, I appreciate your coverage. Recently, I watched a video featuring Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, stating that if Hezbollah escalates, what's happening in Gaza could happen in Beirut with Lebanon's citizens bearing the consequences. While Israel cites reasons like the Hamas tunnel network and the use of civilian facilities as cover for its actions in Gaza, these statements imply a broader strategy that is leveraging civilian repercussions as a deterrent. Given the distinct context in Beirut, what would prompt the replication of the approach used in Gaza, if not collective punishment? I mean, it's a very interesting question, isn't it? If I take Mario right, is he actually suggesting that some of what's going on in Gaza, certainly the destruction of civilian infrastructure as opposed to civilian lives per se, actually is a good signal to send to other enemies like Hezbollah, you know, this is what's going to happen to Lebanon. I mean, do you think there's anything in that, Patrick? Well, it's certainly what what happened in in Lebanon. I I take uh, Mario to mean that this is basically an example of collective punishment. And he quotes uh, Gallant as saying, those who will pay the price are first and foremost Lebanon's citizens, i.e. not Hezbollah. What we are doing in Gaza, we can do in Beirut. So he's more or less saying that this is what is actually in play in Gaza. Well, uh, Yoav Gallant is not doing Israel any favors, I don't think, in using this kind of language. You'll remember at the beginning of the conflict, he said that Israel was, quotes, fighting against human animals, and we will treat them as such. Now, I was in Lebanon in 2006, when uh, Israel uh, launched its attack there in response, it must be said, to Hezbollah attacks across the border. And uh, I remember you know, large residential areas of southern Beirut were flattened, bridges and power stations deliberately knocked out. And most of the t- town of Bint Jabal, which is um, you know, a fairly sizable town on the southern border, the Lebanese southern border, uh, which was a Hezbollah stronghold, had been destroyed. About a million Lebanese were displaced along, it must be said, with about 300,000 Israelis on the other side of the border. So, yes, this was effectively collective punishment for the deeds of Hezbollah. So it's often said, actually, that just as an aside, that the British invented this collective punishment policy in that part of the world. And that is true during the Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939. The Brits often blew up villages which were believed to harbour rebels. Anyway, to get back to the actual situation in Lebanon, it seems to me that Hezbollah have no intention of seriously attacking Israel. Uh, What we've been seeing uh, over the last weeks, sort of trading rocket and missile fire with um, the IDF, it seems to me it's essentially performative. It's a sort of token show of support for their Hamas allies in Gaza. And neither side have an interest in escalating. Interestingly, their leader, that's the Hezbollah leader, Sheikh Nasrallah, 
made a speech the other day, the first time he's spoken properly since the uh, the start of all this. And there was, of course, the usual fiery rhetoric, but no mention of any threats of escalation. So I think that's telling. Okay, another one from James Cobrin. I'd like to know your thoughts on my theory of Israel's public relations dilemma. I assume most of your listeners know the fable of the boy who cried wolf. It's my opinion that Israel's policy from 2011 to 22 of mowing the grass, in other words, responding to Hamas's rocket attacks with massive airstrikes, has backfired in the domain of public opinion. During this period of the conflict, Israel, Hamas, and the rest of the world knew that rocket attacks would almost entirely neutralize by Israel's Iron Dome air defense system, and yet they responded in a very aggressive way, as James points out. However, now that Hamas, i.e. the wolf, has attacked and murdered more than a 1,000 Israeli civilians in cold blood, many people around the world are lining up behind political positions that have been well-established over the past 10 years. In other words, a feeling that uh, Israel tends to respond over-aggressively. It is understandably difficult for people to differentiate between Israel's justification for the current ground invasion and Israel's justification for its airstrikes in response to rocket attacks over the past 10 years. This is exactly what the fable of the boy who cried wolf teaches us. Be very careful when you claim to see a wolf, because if you mistakenly claim to see a wolf too many times, then people may not come running to help when the wolf really does attack. So from that, it strikes me, James does have a certain sympathy with Israel's position, and yet it feels it's kind of created this PR backlash by its behavior over the last 10 years. And yet we all agree that what happened on October the 7th is completely unacceptable and that, you know, in an ideal world, Hamas would be rooted out and and the people of Gaza would be governed by, you know, a far more equitable system. But how likely that is, uh, we really don't know. I mean, Patrick, what's your feeling? I mean, did the last 10 years do a lot of damage to Israeli PR? I think so. I think it's a combination of the Israeli response, which we've discussed in depth over the last couple of pods. But I also think we've got to bear in mind the kind of generational changes. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day about how their children feel about Israel, um, and indeed my own daughter. You know, they weren't brought up with this sort of affection for Israel. The memory of the Holocaust is unfortunately is fading. So they don't see Israel in that kind of, you know, warm glow that we remember of the sort of 1960s and 1970s, the kibbutzim, you know, that great sort of post-war generation that made Israel that kind of uh, can-do spirit. You know, there's something heroic about young Israel, if you want to put it like that. And now over the years, you know, that that feeling, I think, uh, has been either faded or, you know, a younger generation were never aware of it in the first place. So they just see Israel in the light of what's happening now. And it seems to them that uh, when they say they're defending themselves, that it's actually the other way around. Uh, now, this is something that, you know, Israel's got to work very hard to try and redress attitude. But I fear it's that's how, you know, large sections of the younger generation do look on Israel. And of course, the other thing is that it's got it's way beyond just the geographical borders of the conflict, the, the repercussions of this. I think if you were in the Muslim world, uh, an attack on the Palestinians is sort of, in a way, seen as an attack on on them, on Islam and on their values. Now, this is something that Western politicians are going to be, have to be very, very aware of in case this actually translates into the political thinking of their own, you know, citizens. So, you, uh, so who knows? I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if in years to come we start seeing the rise of actually openly Islamic political parties in the West, in Britain and France and elsewhere. So there's a hell of a lot at stake here. A question here from Kieran Marchant. He says, uh, 
Firstly, gents, congratulations on finding a reasonably balanced line <laughs> to walk on the Gaza story, an unbelievably difficult feat to achieve. Well, thank you. That is high praise. That's what we're trying to do. And uh, it's nice to hear that at least some people think we're doing it. Now, he says, uh, sorry. <laughs> of course, there's always a sorry after that. Uh, I'd like to take issue with how you are portraying the Abraham Accords. While I agree that they were a huge diplomatic advance for peace, and stability in the region, they do nothing to advance a solution between Israel and the Palestinians. In fact, the opposite could be said to be true. And support for Palestine is undermined within the signatory governments or those working on becoming signatories to the set of courts. I, I think I made that point, actually, Kieran, that it doesn't necessarily advance the, um, the Palestinian cause much, even though it might bring some stability to the region. Anyway, he goes on to say, following the... Uh, ICC issuance of an arrest warrant for Putin. I look forward to seeing the same for the leaders of Hamas and Netanyahu and his cohorts. And having listened on the latest Gaza pod to the civilian death toll in Iraq, there were some figures I cited uh, a week or two ago, then maybe we should be awaiting the same for Bush and Blair. Now, that's your areas of special interest, isn't it, Saul, the ICC? Do you think that that's, um, <laughs> that's a possibility? I mean, um, Not anytime soon, no. I mean, should it be? Should they be looking at some of the decisions that are being taken? I think the problem with this conflict, as opposed to Ukraine, is it's much harder to separate the Israeli argument that this is a military target that just happens to be next to civilian infrastructure to what's going on in, in Ukraine, where this forced repatriation of children and the deliberate targeting of uh, civilian infrastructure, which can have no obvious military purpose, in particular energy. I mean, I think it's a much clearer cut case. I do sympathize with Kieran's broader argument that a lot of mischief has been perpetrated and a lot of lives have been uh, lost in recent conflicts, including the Gazan conflict, by irresponsible military action. I do agree with that and I sympathize with it. Do I expect arrest warrants issued by the ICC for Netanyahu and the Western leaders? No, I don't. There is enough of a difference between the, the two sides, I think, to justify that to a certain extent. But you'd really need to talk to the lawyers and the experts in the ICC for that. He does say Hamas leaders as well. So uh, I think he's making a, a reasonable point there. Okay, we've got one here from Tim Hewitt. Hi, gents. Listening to the latest podcast on the situation in Gaza, I can't help but ask myself if Hamas are even resisting the IDF operation in Gaza with less than 50 Israeli casualties. It seems unlikely in my admittedly very limited territorial army experience. I was taught to expect a very high casualty rate in urban fighting. If Hamas were resisting the incursion, IDF casualties would be significant. It would also seem to make very little sense for them to resist. They can't win a straight fight, but the current state of affairs has the court of international opinion, especially on the strange fringes of society, turning ever more against the Israeli response. Every civilian who dies is, in their eyes, a martyr to the course. To me, to look like the IDF have walked into a PR trap and the Hamas leadership are probably somewhere underground very happy with how things are playing out. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, what do you think, Patrick? Yeah, I completely agree, Tim. Just look, talking about the actual nature of the fighting, uh, looking at the images, admittedly, there aren't very many of them, but looking at what clips have been put out uh, of the actual combat uh, on the Israeli side, it seems to be a case of infantry advancing behind tanks, blasting away at the buildings in front of them. But often uh, the soldiers don't seem to be 
receiving any incoming fire. So, I mean, it was often mooted, wasn't it, at the beginning, um, indeed by ourselves, that there could well be hand-to-hand fighting in the rubble of, of Gaza City. That doesn't seem to have materialized. I also saw some Hamas footage that was released the other day. It shows a small squad of about three or four fighters uh, armed with assault rifles and RPGs advancing through what looks like a sort of coastal area of scrubland, low trees, and then popping up and firing on a dozen or so Israeli infantry uh, who were gathered inside a kind of lager of tanks. But it looked to me more like a propaganda effort than a serious attack. So, you know, I haven't seen much evidence that Hamas are making a stand anywhere. Now, thinking about Hamas, it seems to me that essentially this is not really a military organization in any meaningful sense. It's it's all about provocation, isn't it? They're essentially provocateurs. They're not soldiers, they're not fighters as such. Yeah, they clearly are terrorists when it comes to the attack on October the 7th. And their violence is designed to provoke a disproportionate reaction, which Israel willingly supplies. So by responding with overwhelming force, uh, Israel is in effect giving the initiative to Hamas, and indeed the same applies um, to Hezbollah. What do, you, what do you think about that, Saul? Yeah, I mean, there, there have actually been a few more clashes uh, between fighters from both sides, of course, the IDF on the one hand, and on the other hand, the, the Al-Quds Brigade, which is the militant wing of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and also the Al-Qasem Brigades, the militant wing of Hamas. And the the latter are, you know, do actually number quite a few thousand. I, I think the Israelis estimate that the total Hamas force in arms against them is about 30,000, and they reckon they killed about 1,000. So that that does still leave an awful lot of people with weapons uh, potentially available to oppose them and whether this will happen when they move south of the border. But but even the most recent briefings by the ISW does point out that there have been a number of clashes north of the border. And that's just in the last couple of days. So it's not that there's no fighting going on, but I, I definitely think the broader thrust, of course, is that a relatively one-sided fight in which, as you pointed out, Patrick, the Israelis are not meeting an enormous amount of opposition. If they had been, of course, the casualty figures would have been much higher. Yeah, we've got a thoughtful contribution here from Robert J. Edwards in Vancouver, British Columbia and Canada. And I won't read the whole thing out. He says he's a cautious admirer of our work on the present situation in Gaza. And he talks about the way that the Israel story was sort of presented. He he's a, he has issues with it, as indeed quite a few uh, historians do, including Israeli historians, about how Israel actually came into being, etc. But what the point that uh, Robert makes that uh, I'd like to just flag up is um, when we've been talking about the two-state solution. You know, this is an, an old, this is the traditional diplomatic way of trying to bring peace to Israel-Palestine. He says that among the students in American and Canadian university campuses who support the Palestinian cause, i.e. the younger generation, the two-state solution to them is dead. And in its place is the movement for the destruction of what he calls Israeli apartheid and the establishment of equality of rights for all the people of Palestine and Israel in a single reconstituted state. Now, this idea of a a single state solution, a one state solution has been around for a while, uh, really since the failure of the Oslo Accords and when people were casting around for some other way to bring peace to the region. Um, 
And, you know, it is, a, it is a fascinating idea. It's basically putting all those territories into one state uh, west of the Jordan River where everyone basically has to get on. Everyone is a citizen, be they Arab or Israeli. And you, you basically have to accept a kind of multicultural, multi-faith society. Um, it does seem a bit utopian at this point, but uh, it's certainly something that does seem a way forward if there was a very fundamental sort of change of heart on both sides of the line as it's as it's currently uh, drawn. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's something we might have a look at properly down the line. But, yeah, I think I think um, the time is coming when, when uh, we should be giving more attention to possible diplomatic solutions, possible ways of going forward rather than dwelling on the terrible events that we we're witnessing every day. I, I love the sound of that, Patrick, but uh, I, I suspect hopelessly optimistic in the short to mid, if not the long term, but we'll see. All right, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday when we'll be returning, of course, to Ukraine and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.